Hi, I'm Simon Schuster, the Berlin correspondent for Time magazine, and you're listening to Transit Lounge Radio in Berlin at the 15th Disruption Network Lab event, Dark Havens Confronting Hidden Money and Power. Hi, Simon. Thank you so much for joining me in the Transit Lounge. It's really a pleasure to have you here. So I'm really curious, I guess, to know a little bit about your role in confronting hidden money and power and how you came to be involved in the Dark Havens conference. Well, I've, I've been reporting on these subjects for quite a while. Before Berlin, I was the Moscow correspondent for Time magazine, uh, and that brought me into a lot of stories related to the use of offshore tax havens for all, all kinds of illicit purposes, corruption networks, um, smuggling networks, uh, organized crime, and government corruption. And in, in Europe, I've sort of continued to report around those themes. That's probably why Dark Havens reached out to me and the Disruption Network Lab to to um, help moderate the event. I think a lot of the stories, pretty much all the stories that I work on now have a component of tax havens and offshore wealth, regardless of, of whether it's politics, business, or organized crime. They all contain elements of the use of offshore Tax havens, that's really just the, the circulatory system of the money that flows through uh, in between all of these systems. So it touches on basically every story that I work on. I know it's super fascinating. I think when I was speaking to um, Frederick Obermeyer and he sort of said like, you know, 10 years ago, you mentioned tax at a party and people would run screaming. But I think the conversation and the public understanding of how these offshore tax havens work and also how much they're impacting our day-to-day lives in society, like in terms of, you know, money being extracted from the economy and circulating in a different kind of, I don't know if it's a shadow economy, a dark economy, what sort of how you describe it, but that there are also very real world effects in terms of the way that, that we're living and the way that governments function, that it's sort of so bound up in this other system. Yeah, and, and the awareness, the public awareness is really growing and the interest is is really intensifying. This year at the, at the Davos Forum, the Davos Summit, Time Magazine hosted a panel discussion on taxes. And one of the speakers there is Professor Bergman, a Dutch professor who's a historian, but he specializes in uh, taxes. He's an absolute hero. I've just finished reading Utopia for Realists and <laughs> fantastic. So you hosted him there. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, he made a remark about the hypocrisy of some uh, billionaires traveling to Davos on private jets and talking about saving the world. And he made the point that, you know, we need to be talking about taxes. And, and the video of him making that remark went absolutely viral. Uh, and it was interesting to me because it, it was a point that's often made by journalists, experts, uh, even politicians. But somehow the way he phrased it uh, and maybe the moment in which he phrased it uh, allowed it to, to really, you know, start a conversation globally. And, and that was really exciting and nice also for the editors of Time that they could be part of this conversation, help spark it. But what it really showed me is that the interest among the public is intense. Uh, social media users all over the world spreading and commenting on this point that he made. And, and he's since given a lot of really interesting talks. And uh, you mentioned his book. So I, I think you're right that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it would have been hard for a remark on uh, taxes and hypocrisy to really spread like that. And I mean, how do you think that it's possible to actually make that shift so that people who have so much consolidated wealth and power and who are so kind of involved in the systems of government and these like transnational corporations that are kind of pulling the strings a lot behind the scenes, like, what do you think it takes to actually shift the way that they're operating to make the people with 
that super concentrated wealth understand that maybe it's not such a great thing to keep it all to themselves and that actually feeding it back into society could be beneficial for everyone. Well, as, as we discussed at, at the Dark Havens Forum here in Berlin, you know, it, it takes a lot of public pressure uh, on the politicians to raise this issue on the agenda of politicians as they run for office and as they govern and make policy. You know, that, that kind of pressure has to come from the bottom and has to be part of the conversation about inequality. I think that's where the interest is coming from. People understand that uh, taxes and offshore wealth, you know, are central to the issue of inequality, the stratification of wealth, you know, the, these ultra high net worth individuals essentially playing by rules that don't apply to the rest of us and ignoring rules and laws that, that do apply to the rest of us when it comes to uh, taxes, certainly skirting those rules. But to be honest, having covered this uh, for, for some years, I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic about the impact that can really have. Um, after the global financial crisis, and as the global financial crisis was unfolding, President Obama you know, made this a central part of his campaign in, in 2008 when he was being elected. He talked a lot about tax havens. When he took office, his government, his administration made this uh, a big priority. They, they passed legislation that was quite powerful. Um, I think so. The, the most powerful, if, if you look at a law like FATCA, the, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, uh, it, it was groundbreaking and unprecedented in, in its scope. Still, it has not destroyed that system. So I do think the Obama administration made an honest attempt under the pressure that was bubbling up from the global financial crisis and the anger among the public and, and voters uh, related to that crisis. Uh, but still, it did not uh, unravel um, that system. The system continued to exist. The main takeaway from my reporting on it is that it became more difficult for kind of mid-level millionaires to use it, to use the, the system of tax avoidance built into offshore tax havens. But the, the billionaires and, and you know, the multimillionaires still had uh, access to this through uh, loopholes and, and complex tax avoidance schemes that uh, they could get through more expensive lawyers. But, but the lower level um, and you know, lower level millionaires uh, were found it somewhat more difficult, or I'd say a lot more difficult to access that system. But it didn't destroy the system. Yeah, clearly it's still um, operating. Like I've, I hear the figures somewhere between seven trillion and forty trillion dollars that's still sitting in offshore accounts. And I mean, Nicholas Jackson was talking a little bit about working with the Tax Justice Network and you know also trying to put pressure on governance. And I, I, I hadn't understood that Britain itself is actually responsible for like fifty percent of the world's tax havens. They're not all in the Bahamas and the Cayman Islands. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's really you know the essential problem. In our discussions here, Switzerland uh, really took it on the chin. You know, a lot of people were focusing on Switzerland. The Obama administration was focusing on Switzerland as the oldest and and one of the biggest certainly uh, tax havens. But the the problem with that is that uh, a lot of the countries, the, the United States and and the UK, who have politically made a lot of noise around coming down hard on tax havens and cracking down on them, and on tax avoiders. They also, the United States, the UK, France, control a lot of tax havens. I mean, the, the state of Delaware in the United States is, is a massive one. The crown dependencies of the UK, Jersey, Guernsey, BVI, I mean, they, they maintain their position and maybe even increase their position as the leading tax havens in the world uh, as pressure came down on, on Switzerland and some others. Also, you saw a lot of 
money moving to uh, Asian tax havens, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong. So it, it turns into a game of, of whack-a-mole where uh, as some governments and some legislation begins to, to put pressure on a, a certain type of tax avoidance or a certain tax haven, others benefit because the money just flows out to the jurisdictions that can provide the secrecy and can provide the other tax avoidance uh, instruments that uh, the super rich want and need. And I mean, the secrecy seems to be a really key point as well, because I spoke also with um, Stephanie Gibault, who was the whistleblower from UBS and who's written a book about how whistleblowers are treated around the world and the fact that the people who are actually um, bringing to light these, these schemes and like at a very high level, they're the ones who are being treated as criminals and who are being, you know, harassed, threatened, imprisoned. I know that there are sort of support networks for whistleblowers, but do you think they're having any effect or do you think that it's still like very, very difficult for people to come forward when they're aware of these things that are happening and they are in a position to give evidence about it? In this, I think journalists can play a big role in terms of, you know, providing anonymity and ensuring the anonymity and protecting their sources when whistleblowers do come forward and choose to remain anonymous. That's uh, in, in many ways up to journalists to to protect those sources. But in terms of the whistleblowers who come forward and are either you know exposed by their uh, employers or the, the structures where they work, or they choose to to go public and, and reveal their names and, and faces, it's it's still extremely difficult. I mean, I I find it hard to imagine you know the the kind of career trajectory of a whistleblower after uh, they blow the whistle and and you know, often said that you can only blow the whistle once because um, once you do, these kinds of structures and organizations might not be so keen to let you back in uh, and have a look at their secrets. So do you have any reflections or things that you kind of learned or were particularly interesting from the conference on the weekend? Yeah, it, it relates to the point I just made about what journalists can do to protect sources. I mean, the, the big dilemma of the um, first contact, how do you help a source or a potential source contact you initially without exposing herself or, or himself to either the investigators within their own institution or maybe some government scrutiny. It's, it's a tricky one because, you know, that, that first contact, if, if it's made via email or some other um, uh, vulnerable form of communication, it really exposes the sources. The conversation that was most useful to me was was the one from colleagues at uh, OCCRP and the Intercept uh, about how to deal with that. How do you how do you build infrastructure? And in, in many ways, this is a technical issue. Um, how do you create the kinds of uh, anonymous drop boxes, and how do you inform potential sources about how to use those safely so that they maintain anonymity if if they choose to blow the whistle uh, w- without exposing themselves. I think, yeah, Friedrich made a nice comment where he said he had someone write from their government email address and he said, never contact a journalist again, ever. But there are things also, I guess, of informing people like how to use SecureDrop or some of the other systems that are actually available to start giving information anonymously and securely without it being monitored, yeah? Yeah, that, that's right. These technologies are available. They're they're developing. Another really exciting thing that was discussed here for me as a journalist was uh, something that OCCRP is, is doing, the Organized Crime and, and Corruption Reporting Project. Um, they're creating a, a sort of database of databases of, of leaks where journalists can more easily go back and search through databases and, and files that have been leaked in the past. Uh, and that's really exciting and, and would be potentially game-changing for, for journalists because 
often when a leak comes out, you know, even one as big as the Panama Papers or or uh, Edward Snowden's revelations, uh, there's a certain wave of interest uh, and reporting around it. But after you know a few days or weeks or months, uh, the interest fades. But often the the bulk of the information that has been leaked, the bulk of the files have not yet even been read or studied uh, and have not resulted in uh, journalistic reports. So what a database of of these leaks would do is is allow journalists to essentially, when they begin working on a story, uh, go onto that database and look for files related to the the subject of their latest report uh, and see if there's material there that can deepen their understanding of, of the subject matter, files that maybe have, have not have gone unnoticed from previous leaks. So the, fa- the fact that um, some of the most talented people uh, in the game right now are working on that kind of database of databases is, is really exciting. No, that's absolutely fascinating. It can be hard to get like editors to agree to more stories on tax havens, corruption. Um, so if you can actually work on embedding it into a story with a different angle or that's you know bringing something else to light, in terms of injustice or inequality or malfeasance in general, that then that's giving you just another another way of reporting. So I'm just wondering too, as a sort of a journalist working in this field, what sort of um, risks have you taken? And I mean, do you feel comfortable talking about the sort of you know the personal aspect of that, and and if that's affected you at all in terms of reporting on you know hidden power structures or you know beneficiaries of these enormous resources? Yeah, there there are a couple of things. One one point that I highlighted is that some of the most dangerous work outside of a you know immediate hot war zone that journalists can do uh, is exposing the way that uh, illegal money is made. So exposing the beneficiaries behind um, shell companies that are used for illicit purposes. When you do that, you really create an incentive for the people behind these structures to go after you personally and physically because it's a lot cheaper for them to really hire a hitman uh, to to take you out this does happen that that has happened yeah no i understand like in in russia there's a very big problem with journalist safety and also turkey and of course as we've seen in malta yeah exactly and and you know when someone who is engaged in organized crime corruption you know arms smuggling drug smuggling when their names or their their connection to some of these shell companies is exposed, the shell companies involved in these illegal schemes, they start to look at their options, right? And uh, those options can be quite scary for for journalists. So yeah, that that has happened to me in the past related to an investigation I did uh, a lifetime ago, maybe 2010 or so, about uh, an arms smuggling ring based out of uh, Kazakhstan. And that report led to scrutiny from the United Nations and the, the people involved in it were not happy and, and did try to come after me personally. How are you still here? Uh, dumb luck. I happened not to be um, at the office when these guys came looking for me. And my colleagues were at the office and they informed me about it. And then we informed the editors and the editors essentially got me out of country uh, to sit it out. And then, yeah, I, I had to change quite a bit about where I worked and how I worked for, for a while um, until things uh, blew over. And then once a story comes out and it's in the public eye, then there's not so much impetus to try to silence the journalist, I imagine. I, I think that's right, yeah. I mean, in, in this case, this happened after the story actually came out. So there seemed to be – maybe they were afraid of a, a follow-up report or maybe it was it was motivated more by revenge. But uh, it's not always the case that once the story is out, you're safe. Uh, but I, I think there is some some truth to that. You know, if 
the subject of an investigation gets the sense that they can stop the investigation by uh, silencing the journalist, I think they have more more motivation to do that. There's some recent cases, um, you mentioned the one in Malta, show that, that when a journalist is attacked or even killed, their colleagues now make a point to continue the investigation, to finish the work that, that she or he started, uh, to make sure that that motivation for, for the you know, criminals doesn't exist. So they do not feel that they can stop an investigation by uh, silencing a journalist. Indeed, I think that's um, that's a good thing. We don't want people to feel like they can gain impunity through like violence and intimidation. And I mean, do you think that regular people have sort of agency in, in trying to affect change in terms of somehow rewriting the narratives that we have or that we are telling stories about, taking the stories from journalists and actually going further with those agitating, yeah, I mean, what sort of actions or, you know, strategies do you think could be effective? Uh, I think there is some synergy between the work that journalists do and and what uh, activists and uh, NGOs do. You know, when a report, something like the Panama Papers happens, uh, you know, the journalists do the work of uh, vetting the documents and publishing the stories and getting the information out, but then it's really up to civil society to push for change. You know, journalists don't generally stand out on the street with, with placards, um, you know, saying, close the tax havens. Uh, that That's up to uh, activists. And I, I think that that does have an impact. I mean, politicians do pay attention to these things, at least in democratic countries. Uh, and, and I think that's where the change will probably come from. It'll, it'll be not from top down, because unfortunately, political structures and politicians, you know, even in, in democratic countries, are under intense economic and political pressure to not close tax havens and loopholes. If if there's enough pressure from the grassroots level and from civil society, then I think it, it can change. I'm glad to hear that. And um, my last question is, what's your vision for the future or your hope for the future? As it relates to tax havens? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any final reflections or thoughts that you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I think a final reflection would be uh, one thing that's come out of this this uh, forum that we had this week is the the importance of the work that journalists do. There's there's a lot of um, criticism of journalists coming from political leaders in the U.S. and and around Europe and and really worldwide. Media literacy to the extent that people understand the work that journalists do, um, the value that it brings kind of its function as, uh, in many ways, the immune system of a society uh, in trying to, you know, ex- expose things that I think uh, most people would agree we do not want in our societies, you know, organized crime, corruption, you know, illicit wealth, uh, inequality. It is the job of journalists to expose these things and to, to bring public attention to them. I would hope uh, that, and I, I do see that happening as, as a strange reaction or backlash to the attacks against journalists. More and more people are becoming aware of the importance of the work that journalists do. I mean, you see that, uh, for example, in, in the subscription rates of the New York Times and more broadly in conversations that I have that people are aware that, you know, journalists do important stuff. Uh, I, I think it's important for people to understand and to hear what we do, to, to, to understand the kinds of conversations and the complexity of the work that goes into dealing with a leak, uh, dealing with a story. Uh, so I, I think it's important to get the word out uh, about that, and I thank you for your role in, in helping us do that. I'm very happy to help do that. And, I mean, I think keeping people in power accountable to the, the, the societies that they're actually meant to be serving is really a really key aspect of journalism. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining me and for all your great work. <laughs> thank you.